Hello folks, Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to The Daily Evolver. I've been doing this podcast for about three years now, and a couple weeks ago, Brett pointed out to me that I had produced over 100 episodes. This gave me pause, and the opportunity to realize just what a lucky guy I am. I can't imagine doing work that would be more enjoyable and more deeply fulfilling. So I wanted to take a moment with this episode to thank you, my wonderful, faithful listeners, and also to offer a special heartfelt thanks to the one man who was most responsible for the inspiration behind my work, and that's Ken Wilbur, who is my guest for the full episode today. For most of you, I imagine Ken needs no introduction, but in case he's new to you, Ken Wilbur is one of our leading living philosophers, and through his nearly 30 books and countless talks and teachings, he has created the edifice of modern integral theory, a true theory of everything that is worthy of the term. Through his work, Ken has revealed the deeper dimensions of the prime force that powers the cosmos, the force of evolution. By showing that evolution is not just about the exteriors of the world, about atoms becoming molecules, becoming cells, and cells becoming sponges and fish and reptiles and mammals and ultimately human beings, but that evolution also powers the interior dimensions of the cosmos and is behind the astonishing development of human consciousness and human culture. To bring this down to everyday terms, Ken has shown me something that I attempt to show you every week, that we are evolving creatures in an evolving world. And further, that there's a teleology, a directionality to our evolution, and that we as human beings are indeed developing into higher dimensions of goodness, truth, and beauty. Now, I realize that it doesn't always look that way as we tune into the day's news and see that for so many people and creatures of all kinds, life is anything but good, true, and beautiful. But this points to a deeper, paradoxical truth about evolution. While in its grand historical sweep, evolution is beautiful, in its daily application, it is often not at all pretty. And this realization, of course, calls us to enlist, then, in the project of creating a more good, true, and beautiful world. And this is perhaps Ken's greatest teaching to me, that in the final analysis, it turns out that we ourselves are evolution in action, and that every thought we think, and conversation we have, and action we take, and vote we cast, is an opportunity to contribute to a more intelligent, happy, and loving world. So I thought it fitting as I mark my first hundred episodes of The Daily Evolver to invite the great man himself onto the podcast. I've had the amazing good fortune to work with Ken over the past 10 years, and I know him to be not only the smartest person I've ever met, but also one of the wisest and totally unexpected to me when I first met him, one of the wittiest. He is indeed a sparkling vehicle for his own teachings. Last week, we got together on the phone to take a look at the world as it is right now today and to see if we can make some little bit of sense of it. So I invite you to join us. Sit back and enjoy as Ken and I take a tour through this ever-evolving catastrophe called life on planet Earth. And again, thank you so much for listening. 
It's really great to have you with me as I embark on the next 100 episodes of The Daily Evolver. Thanks, Ken, for joining me on the Daily Evolver podcast. I'm really... uh, congratulations on your 100th. Yeah, thank you. I'm really, it's been such a, a fun thing, and I'm just so grateful to you because, I mean, what I'm doing on the Daily Evolver is attempting to use the integral maps that you have right. developed to look right. at current events and to look at yeah, the movement I... of history in our time. Yeah. And um, well, so, so much yeah, of it is, is, well, so much it can't be understood without, you know, using some of those dimensions. No, I think that's really true. And when I think about, and I've said this to you before, but when I think of what the gift that you've given me and that your work has given so many people is that it allows us to live in a bigger world with more in it, more happening, more that we can relate to and deal with and see and understand. And then also we see there's a trajectory, that there's a movement towards the good and the true and the beautiful, even if it's not always pretty. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And speaking of not always pretty, you know, I, I, maybe we start with the fact that, you know, here we are 13.8 billion years after the Big Bang and we're still beheading people. Oh, God. I mean, it, it's really spooky. Um, you look at the general unfolding of, of human consciousness on the whole. And what's so amazing, I mean, on the one hand, there have been an enormous number of strides, and particularly if we just look at strides in the in the right-hand quadrant, strides in artifacts. Because the thing about artifacts is that it only takes one genius to make an artifact that then a million people can use. Yeah. But in terms of where are those million people, they could be at red or amber or orange. They, they don't have to be, you know, stratospherically highly developed. Right. And so we get this strange, strange mixture of sort of each slow, meandering, broad move up in a general center of gravity of a culture. And we've seen it move slowly from archaic into magic and magic mythic and then mythic and then a little bit rational with the Western Enlightenment and so on. But then you also have these outrageous leaps in artifacts with people who can still be at relatively modest levels of development. So if you look at something, one of the things that historians had trouble with was in how to interpret modernity, because the postmodernists all looked at it and saw things like Auschwitz and two world wars and all that. And so they just, you know, flat out said things are getting worse, things are getting horrible. But Auschwitz isn't the product of modernity. Auschwitz is the product of tribal consciousness getting their hands on artifacts of modernity. If you're at a tribal level, you can only do so much damage with a bow and arrow. But if you get people that can create orange artifacts, like, oh, gas ovens, then you can pop off 20,000 people a day. Yeah. And and so so they, we always are getting these um, with every growth in consciousness in general. We certainly see higher artifacts being produced, but they can be used by lower lower levels of of development with, with people's actual interiors. 
So it's one of the funny things is to actually look at something like uh, a terrorist coming out of an Afghanistan cultural background that are just barely above tribal consciousness. And they're cell phoning each other and you know, making notes on their iPads. And uh, it's just yeah. it's outrageous. Um, no, they're literally tweeting. They're, they're tweeting uh, yeah. beheadings. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it, <laughs> Good Lord. it's insane. It's crazy. What is this world coming to, Ken? Well, exactly. And the, and the real problem right now is that we have, there's sort of two, in both the left-hand quadrants and the right-hand quadrants, there's sort of a, a race going on between sort of disaster and potential enormous kind of breakthroughs. And we yeah. see that on both interiors and exteriors. So on the exteriors, of course, we have a, a race between physical ecological disaster and physical technological breakthroughs. So the disasters include, of course, global warming, um, and that's not looking good. Um, right. And I'll come back to that in a minute because that's that's tied into interiors, which is the real cause of that. Um, but we have global epidemics. There's like an Ebola outbreak in Africa right now, killing 60% of of its victims. Um, worldwide uh, ease of travel makes transmission so easy, like the HIV um, virus. Uh, we face food shortages, water shortages, rising sea levels. Some of this connected with global warming. Some of it just on its own. Um, but we're at the first point in history where global physical problems at least threaten humanity's existence. Certainly, it's comfortable existence. Yeah. And that, again, tends to be, in large part, the strange juxtaposition that we see with modernity and post-modernity, which is there can be very high levels of artifact creation, and they can be used by people at any level of moral development. And so somebody at a true world-centric level of moral development is not going to be the head or CEO of a company that's cranking out coal or producing um, heavy oil um, productions that, that are you know dumping carbon into the atmosphere at an alarming rate. Somebody that had a world-centric moral sense would not do that. Right. So they're getting access to artifacts that were created by world-centric consciousness, but but they're being used by egocentric or ethnocentric morals, and that's a problem. Yeah. So so we have that 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 sort of that that whole disastrous possibility that that's looming on us for the first time, really in history. And then also we have possibility of, of physical technological breakthroughs, uh, so-called singularity. But there are real breakthroughs that we're on the edge of right now in robotics and genomics and nanotechnology, in artificial intelligence. We just had a computer win Jeopardy. 
um, <laughs> the two best Jeopardy players in the world, and that was actually kind of a big deal because there was like winner was big. Well, Big Blue beat you know Kasparov in chess a couple of decades right. ago, and, but yes. people sort of said, well, that, that that's not really that impressive because chess really is just a bunch of logical algorithms. The hard thing is that computers can't understand uh, irony and you know symbolic and metaphor and all that kind of stuff. But that's what Jeopardy does. And so to uh, create a computer that actually beat the two best Jeopardy players in the world is that's that's sort of something. Yeah. Um, there's still enormous, uh, you know, ground to cover, but it is an indication that things are continuing to to move forward. And a lot of these technological revolutions really do promise to just change society um, enormously. Um, even our average physical lifespan could go uh, 100 to 200 years. Yeah. And, of course, we haven't even figured out how to handle that economically. Right. I mean, we have people retiring at 75 and living to be 150. Who's going to pay for that? Right. <laughs> so, well, well let like, me actually get into some of the, you know, even to get back to the, the problem of modern technology, modern weaponry yeah. specifically, yeah. in pre-modern hands. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I, I've, I've always sort of, taken heart by that you you've talked about is that it doesn't take the majority of people at higher levels in order to sort of shift the phase up to those levels and you use the example of uh, early america where maybe 10 percent right. of the people were modern but right. we had a modern constitution we developed the modern government and everybody right. sort of had to fall in line with the modern thinking so is there right. any hope there well, that's that's an interesting phenomena. I had started to notice that um, when the leading edge of development in, in any major epoch, uh, and the epic is defined as it's a magic epic or a mythic epic, something like that, and the next stage is starting to emerge. So if it's if it's um, mythic, the next stage is rational, it's starting to emerge, and, and then if it's a rational culture, the next stage is, is post-formal or post-modern. And what seemed to happen is that when the when the leading edge population hit about 10%, that there was a kind of tipping point, and that the values of that leading edge sort of started to saturate the culture. Now, people were still at whatever they were at. They were still at red or they were still at amber. But all of a sudden, orange values became something that was sort of a good thing. And they would tend to embrace those values, of course, as they interpreted them. But all of a sudden, it with only about 10% of the population at these stages, there were dramatic shifts in culture that actually shifted it from magic into mythic or largely mythic into rational, that that its fundamental governing principles were coming from this leading edge. And that's certainly what we see with the emergence of, of modernity. And we, we saw that in America where there's still um, at least 90% of the population was at amber, at ethnocentric um, or lower, but about 10% had orange, modern, rational. And that 10% wrote the Constitution, it wrote the Declaration of Independence, 
um, we're, we're still, in some ways, at that period, we were still straddling ethnocentric agrarian and rational industrial. So the southern states were largely agrarian, and because of that, because ethnocentric has slavery, and rational industrial outlaws slavery. In the 100-year period where rational industrial, every rational industrial society on the face of the planet outlawed slavery yeah. because it comes with world-centric morals and world-centrically, slavery is wrong. Ethnocentrically, slavery is not only okay, it's sort of the way things are done. It's, a, it's part of nature so you're supposed to do that. So you have um, you know, upwards of half the founding fathers, certainly virtually all the ones from the southern states, have slaves. Say, have somebody like Jefferson, probably one of the one of the weirdest of the lot, because he's writing so much about, you know, democracy and freeing um, men and all men being born equal and all of that, but owning slaves. Yeah. Uh, so the, the United well, States. Well, not only that, Ken, he he he'd probably be uh, a serial rapist. Uh, yeah, he was in, in, in our society. Yeah, it, uh, and it, yet it, he writes the Declaration of Independence. It's just astonishing. I know, I know it is, <laughs> it is. And and the United States were unfortunately, were we were born as a country, in exactly that 100 year period that slavery was being outlawed. And so what yeah. we got is we got stuck essentially with two countries. Um, Good point. An ethnocentric slavery, uh, fundamentalist believing, southern culture and a northern rational industrial um, agnostic type of culture that led to a civil war and it still hasn't fundamentally disappeared we still have those two fundamental cultures in in this in this country yeah but but the thing about the the 10 percent is that uh we saw the same thing happen with with post-modernity that um I mean, in 1959, the percentage of the population at Green was about 2 to 3%. And by 1979, Jacques Derrida was the most frequently quoted academic writer in America. Yeah. And we had somewhere between 10 and 15% of the population at Green. And today, it's somewhere between 20 to 25%. But so it hits 10, and we have the student riots starting in Paris, May 1968, sort of the official beginning of post-modernity. And those spread you know, around the world and certainly had a warm welcome in America. And then all of a sudden, things that were sort of okay in 1950s culture, um, like you're, at, you're working in a big corporate office and you're, and you're going by the water cooler and a woman's bending over getting a drink of water or something and you slap her on the ass. And, you know, she kind of ha-ha, and everybody sort of ha-ha, and it, nobody thinks anything about it. Now, you try yeah. doing that, in, you know, in 1978, and you get arrested. So even even though not, you know, at least 80% uh, uh, of the population is not at those levels, those values have, have sunk down. Yeah. And you can you can certainly see that, for example, in well, from from Stonewall to legal marriage. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, astonishing. Uh, no, and, uh, amazing. In my lifetime as a gay man, 
I can't, you know, Stonewall, I think I was 14. Wow. And now, you know, gay marriage in 19 states, and it's basically the whole edifice is crumbling. It's just, it's here. It, it, amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. And yet you still have, you know, the percentage of population that is at some of those levels is still relatively modest. Yeah. So it's an it's an interesting thing, and I've started seeing ever since I sort of kind of published this, just sort of overview of about a ten percent tipping point kind of thing. I've had several people send me results of certain studies that have been done, like at Stanford and so on, and mm-hmm. they're showing that when ten percent of a population changes its mind to into a particular topic that that's enough to get a majority of the population to change its mind. Mm-hmm. So I don't know exactly what all the details are on that, but the general notion that we do have sort of going in our favor is is that it does look like when you know the leading edge hits about 10% or certainly more, that there tends to be a diffusion of its values throughout the culture. And that's, of course, what we see. I mean, when we, when we talk about the Western Enlightenment and modernity and all of that, even if only 20% or even 30%, I mean, I think Robert Keegan in In Over Our Heads um, gives a pretty dismal percentage for America. He said three out of five people weren't at levels of modern thinking. In other words, it hmm. weren't it orange. In other words, sixty percent of the population was ethnocentric or lower. And it's usually you you hear a little bit more like um, like the spiral dynamics will will put the percentage of of, of people in, in America at orange at around fifty percent, for example. Um, but wherever it is, those those values of uh, individual freedom and equality and so on tend to be sort of deeply etched into American culture now. The problem is that as we look worldwide, and uh, another thing that modern historians got wrong because they didn't understand more integral views was every modern historian and virtually all the modern philosophers said that religion would die. And they said that because they watched the rational orange level emerge from the mythic amber. And pretty much everybody who developed rationality gave up on mythic religion and just found it kind of silly and, you know, right up there with the tooth fairy and Santa Claus and, and, and all of that. But everybody overlooked the fact that people are still born at square one. Everybody still has to go through the whole developmental sequence. So every time one person is moving from mythic, amber, ethnocentric into orange, modern, rational, two people are moving into it. So it's kind of keeping you know a whole pool of uh, as people move out of lower stages, but they're also moving into it. Right. And every time somebody someplace is making love, they're making ready to make a little Nazi because <laughs> <laughs> they're no, going to have to go through that stage. <laughs> I know. No, that's right. Well, well, Ken, like so, bringing this forward to today. So, look, looking again globally. Yeah. Um. What. 
you know, isn't there a pretty good percent? And I, I've heard you say five. I've heard you say different numbers, I think. But, yeah. you know, a percent of people who are operating at at least a functional integral stage. Right. Um, and I think that's actually those people, of course, are concentrated at the highest levels of achievement, in a sense, I mean, right. in terms of government, NGOs, business, so forth. Right. Uh, they're really the people who are pulling the levers of power. Uh, they have to be almost. You, you, could, you almost could make the argument that you can't be a successful global leader of an organization and not be at least functionally teal. Um, um, is there some yeah. hope here? Yeah. Um, part of um, what we're looking at is that um, even – with 70% of the world's population at ethnocentric or lower, amber or lower, um, yeah. we we do have um, a fair number of people that are continuing to um, move into these higher levels. And um, when the book Spiral Dynamics first came out, for example, they estimated the percentage worldwide population of people at turquoise was 0.5 percent, and teal was three to four percent. Okay, and and that's um, and and um, Beck thinks that that's overall gone up to at, at least five percent. I think that's a, a, at least uh, correct. And uh, the point is that we are moving towards that 10 percent tipping point, and that would be that's going to be a really extraordinary period and because the simple reason here is that if it's true that when the leading edge hits 10 percent there's a kind of 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 um, perfusion of its values throughout the culture a kind of a diffusion of its values in a way that they become sort of more acceptable or even even something that that people would tend to to choose um Integral values are radically different than any sort of values that we have ever seen in any stage of development in any of humanity's history, ever. Wow. There's all the first-tier stages are uh, exclusionary. Every single one of them thinks that their values and their values alone are true. And then all of a sudden you get what, what Claire Graves calls monumental leap of meaning into second tier. And then all of a sudden, stages think that every single previous stage is important. It has some significance. It's there for some reason. It's important. You can't get rid of it because human growth and development on the whole depends on each of these stages, just like you can't go from atoms to molecules to cells to organisms and skip molecules. That doesn't work. So even though you have some of these lower stages, there's still a crucial stepping stage, a stepping point in overall human growth and development. So, so for the first time, we have stage of development that thinks other stages of development are important and deserve to be included in, in, a, in an overall human uh, existence. That's never happened yeah. before. We don't have. You have to. You have to admit that's pretty radical, isn't it? It's outrageous. I mean, just we that alone. Just never seen it. It's it's out. It's wild. 
I mean, you know, green is sort of, I, I think I'm sort of halfway to integral. I mean, it wants to be integral. It calls itself the integral culture. Um, it doesn't want to marginalize anybody. But green hates second tier. Green loathes orange. Green can't stand amber. Green, weirdly, loves red because it does a, a, a pre-post thing and thinks that, that the, all those pre-conventional types are really post-conventional. So it, it, it sort of uh, snuggies up with them. Uh, but, but generally speaking, it just doesn't get to a really inclusionary stance. And it, it won't do that because it, it doesn't understand holarchies and how you actually get transcend and include and transcend and include and therefore you can actually make broader and broader, wider and wider, bigger and bigger networks. So it, it it just kind of ends up in a, in a fractionated, um, fragmented, partial, broken stance uh, right. that falls apart in in nihilism and and just sort of doesn't really go anywhere. But that, all that would change with that monumental leap of meaning yeah. and the well, values yeah. that we, you know, yeah. we just well, have, we, we don't have any any indication of how to build a, a culture. That's really inclusive. It's never been done yeah. before, ever. Uh, the idea wasn't huh. even accepted before. So this is going to be a very, very interesting uh, shift. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I – let me just run this by you, Ken, and see what you think. Yeah. So here we have this ISIS, you know, this Islamic fundamentalist yeah. movement that's, you know, sweeping this part of Syria yep. in Iraq and do the, putting right. heads on spikes and all of that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, the rest of the world is only going to tolerate so much of that, I'm thinking. And there is a certain um, integral response to that, that, or maybe it's just a, a modern response to that. I, I don't know. I get a little confused here. But this isn't the Third Reich. These, aren't, th these people aren't really going to prevail in terms of any kind of world domination. They're not even long for this world, as far as I can tell. Uh, I, I think they underestimate the meat grinder they've just sort of provoked in, uh, right. that's coming their way. Uh, so I don't know. Is, uh, how do you interpret that in terms of you know, an integral response versus – I don't know. I get, what, what do you? I, I'm confused. What do you think? Yeah. Well, part of the difficulty is that our common wisdom in 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 our in our common culture doesn't really have any sort of explicit understanding of very much of the realities of the interior dimensions. Yeah. So everything we can see with our eyes, we believe in. And anything in the sensory motor world, we can believe in. So we'll, we'll believe in the exteriors of all those interiors. We believe in a triune brain. And we'll believe in stages of physical development that that triune brain goes through. But the correlates on the left-hand quadrants, which is stages of, of growth in consciousness, we just don't know about those, because okay, mm -hmm. you know we can't see those out there running around someplace, and so it, it's a notoriously not known dimension of human reality, and yet it's the cause 
of 60-70% of human actions. And so we remain ignorant about the cause of the majority of things that we see in our world. I mean, it's really like 96% of the universe being dark matter. What the hell is that? I mean, we, you yeah. know, it could be like dragons and angels and shit going on. We, don't, we have oh, no man. idea. Don't but it's 96%. I mean, that, you know, it's the same thing with interiors. That's just more dark matter. And, yeah. and most, I mean, most world leaders, most thought leaders, uh, most university professors have no bloody idea of the stages that each of their multiple intelligences went through as it got to wherever it is they are. And they think that the way they see the world, if they're orange, the way they see an orange world, if they're green, the way they see a green world, if they're teal, the way they see a teal world, they think that orange, green, and teal world is just the way it is. Right. That's just the that's the way the world is. That's the way, and that's yeah. it. And I'm I'm thinking about it accurately, and I'm reflecting it accurately. And, yeah. and people that are, are like mythic or magic, they're just not seeing the real world right. Yeah, yeah. But I'm I'm seeing it right, and and so on. So so because of that, people don't have a way that they can get an accurate assessment of what something like a amber extreme fundamentalist what their world is really like what they're coming yeah. from what they're willing to do the limitations of how they see the world and the the extremely driven and narrow motivations that they have and so we just keep assuming that they haven't really got you know human values and democratic values and they just don't understand good old western enlightenment values and so they're stuck in some sort of primitive, uh, you know, 2,000-year-old uh, civilization. And, and that, again, fails to understand that everybody's born at square one, and we have fresh versions of these levels being produced daily. So it, it, the fact is that things like magic and mythic, there were periods in our past where they predominated is true. But they're not just something from the past because we have modern people going through them now. We have present-day people going through these stages. And so whenever you find a belief structure that happens to resonate with a particular stage of development that a human goes through, then it, it becomes a very um, strong attractor for that person's center of gravity. Yeah. And so when you have 70% of the world's population at amber or lower levels, then amber belief systems, which were really prevalent 2,000 years ago, but are still everywhere today in all sorts of ways, then yeah. it becomes very attractive for people to undergo, in a sense, arrested development at those stages and really hang out there and really believe them aggressively. Yeah. And so it doesn't matter if you have a Southern Baptist blowing up abortion clinics in the South, or Buddhist group putting sarin gas in the Tokyo subway system, or Sikh separatists, or Sinhalese uh, Buddhists attacking Tamil Hindus in Sri Lanka. All of these fundamentalist organizations, Hamas, Hezbollah, I mean, they're, they're everywhere. And unfortunately, those still have an enormous attraction 
to individuals in those subgroups, in those cultures. Yeah, even if they're coming from Britain or America, as we Absolutely. Think. Absolutely. That's one of the, because one of the things about these, these various levels of development is that uh, their deep structures are identical cross-culturally. Yeah. So you can you can come in at amber from any other culture, and still have, have be, you know, really resonate with the amber deep structures of of any culture that you're at. Yeah. And so that's a real problem. And we, we one of the biggest problems about that problem is because humanity doesn't really recognize or acknowledge interiors, we don't know what the cause of that problem is. And because we don't know what the cause is, we don't know what to do about it effectively. Yeah. And so we don't. And so it's it's some 300 years since uh, at least world-centric universal rights of humankind were introduced. And less than 30% of the worldwide population is at those stages. So that's kind of a little bit slow. And it's, again, a testament to the fact that everybody is born a square one yeah. and has to go through all these things. And they can, you can, people can get derailed, sidestepped, stopped at any stage of that development. And so that's one of the problems that we're looking at. And it, it, it uh, impacts everything. It impacts our politics. It impacts, uh, I mean, one of the first things that, that we should do in our educational system is because people don't have trouble saying, you know, there's one to 12 grades. That's the one area where everybody sort of allows levels are okay. Yeah. And they sort of make sense. And it's not putting somebody down to say they're in seventh grade. It's just mean that they're in, in seven, they're, they can keep going. And, and there's nothing, you know, wrong with that, nothing to be embarrassed about or anything like that. Um, if you dropped out at seventh grade. And then, as an adult had a seventh grade education, then that would be a little bit problematic. But what we don't realize is that there are people, in terms of of developmental interiors, that in a sense drop out of seventh grade. Yeah. And they're adults. Well, I think it's one are, of I think it's one of the challenges of integral, is that you know, as you just said, people get development when it comes to children. That's exactly. Uh, it's just it's too obvious to miss. Exactly. Uh, but the, the idea that there are cultures that are, you know, relatively, I mean, you don't want to use the word childish, but they're, you know, they're basically at a stage of development that is the same as a 12-year-old. That's right. Or a 16-year-old. Or, well, that's you know, exactly right. Or a 7-year-old. Or a 7-year-old. Yeah. And, uh, and, that, and, 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 and that we adults realize that we can't let them have missiles. And, That's and, exactly right. Yeah. And it starts to come down to um, the point about if we were going to have a worldwide democracy and there was like a green world federation and it believed in egalitarianism, that everybody's absolutely equal, no differences whatsoever, and therefore we're going to institute one person, one vote, instant worldwide democracy then, uh, uh, well, even in the United States, if we did that, Kansas would outlaw the teaching of evolution. It's already <laughs> tried it. It's already tried it twice. 
Yeah. <laughs> we don't Supreme. need direct democracy. <laughs> <laughs> well, and which brings the, me to, you know, you've, you've, you've sometimes talked about, so what, if we look at governmental structures, yeah. um, w- Democracy isn't the end of the road. Certainly, direct democracy. I mean, even representative democracy is better than direct democracy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And one of the things and, that and I what's think what's to come. Well, that's the thing, um, it, and it depends uh, entirely on how much of uh, awareness of interior stages of development starts to become relatively well-known and well-understood in culture at large. And I think one of the first things that needs to be done to help that is for us to start, I mean, we, we acknowledge, well, I say one, grades 1 through 12, we acknowledge at least 12 levels of getting a human being up to what we consider a minimal amount of development to let them participate in a modern democracy. And one of the things that would help is if those levels were started to be identified by not just the skills that they teach, because skills mm-hmm. depend upon levels of development, different skills at different levels, but they, they, they can identify with skills. I mean, because there's always this big movement to have national testing for skills at a particular grade. So everybody at, at grade four needs to know these skills, and everybody at grade seven needs to know these skills, and we test them for it. And all, there's always that kind of movement um, because there are well, certain things to recommend it and because certain schools don't do as well as others and so on. But if we also started identifying what altitude a particular grade was meant to bring forth. Yeah. So at, at red and in, in magenta, I mean infrared, magenta, red, amber, and into orange and green. Those those basic stages, levels of consciousness would be expected. That's what high school would attempt to deliver to each human being. Is that when you got your diploma, you would also get your interior little marker and it would say at least orange. And if you managed to get to green or teal, then you would get a, a teal or a, or a or a green little marker. Yeah. And 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 so we would start to understand that these first to twelve grades aren't just something that kids go through, but that adults can be at. Right. Absolutely. And so if we started to understand what amber meant, we would look at a culture like Iraq or Iran or Afghanistan. We would say amber. And that would change how we approach that dramatically. First, we'd stop trying to dump green values into their system and see them just continue to elect the next military dictator. And we would have an understanding about red cultures and what it takes to, for them to actually be held together as a culture. Green democracy is not it. So um, if we just started to make those simple connections by our own educational upbringing, it doesn't strike me as an 
terribly huge leap to do something like that because we you know we could just present it as these are the vertical stages of development that we expect every school grade to reach this is part of our national testing and so uh and then so if somebody was uh you know got into 12th grade and was still at red there would be remedial classes on interior development helping that person get up to orange and that would in itself would be extraordinary because one of the things that that would do is get people through that glass ceiling of world centric because virtually all human conflicts in the world today are one ethnocentric group versus another ethnocentric group that's what the most and it's just crazy but you see it you know everywhere i mean and that's what we're looking at and one of the biggest problems is that you know most of the people are ethnocentric are owned they belong to one of the world's great religions and yeah. the great religion in its fundamentalist ethnocentric version well if we look at the world uh, as a whole we see that you know there's certainly many people in america let's even say 50 60 percent who are at the amber stage or prior yeah. uh, but they're contained in a modern system a postmodern system exactly what, where it's really running amok is the middle east Right. And particularly in this one, you know, hot zone, yep. uh, you know, and we, we still have Africa. It's a big continent and, and a lot of it's, you know, amber, modern, whatever. But there's still a lot that's pre-modern there. Yep. yep. Uh, but other than that, you know, even China, where we have maybe, gosh, 90 percent of the people are pre-modern. But right. there's, there's this skin. There's this, you know, strata on top. I mean, it's it's remarkable and astonishing to me that that's how it works, that China can be a civilized partner in world relations for the most part right. when it has such an ocean of people who are at the pre-modern stage of development. And, I, you know, I find that encouraging. Well, it is. And it, mean, it's one really of the oddities. With a trailing edge. Yeah, it, it, it's one of the oddities about, about China and, and a couple of places like that. The Soviet Union, for a while, um, it, 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 when it broke up, it broke up into ethnocentric clans. Yeah. And then that started out to be then a basically warlord versus warlord. And, 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 we, and, and that sort of whole process went on. A lot of people that, that see Putin is not much more than an ethnocentric warlord. Who's, um, yeah. And, of course, the, the whole Ukraine-Russia thing is an ethnocentric um, conflict again, um, but in China you had this bizarre thing where something called Western Marxism, um, which in itself is is a is a orange or green philosophy, and so you had totalitarian versions of that coming in and with with fairly low motives. You can sort of look at their multiple intelligences and draw a cycle graph out that distinguishes a little bit between, you know, uh, just their cognitive capacity, which is quite high, the technological capacity is quite high, interpersonal capacity are fairly high, and you, you just get to morals and say, uh, not quite as as high, maybe. And mm-hmm. but there is that totalitarian, rational 
sector sitting on top, strangely putting a clamp on the magic and mythic stuff below it. Pretty effectively. Pretty effectively. And so that can happen. You see um, uh, essentially similar types of things happening in India, but India also has this very peculiar mix of having fairly high state development in certain ways. So there are a lot of people at Mythic, but there are also a lot of people that are Mythic Causal or Mythic uh, Turia or Mythic Non-Dual. And so that makes it just a little gentler um, than than, um, China, which is uh, what they're sitting on is sort of a a Mongol invasion mentality. Uh, And so... um, but that, all of that is it, what we, where we really see problems are where you get countries where the leadership is essentially ethnocentric, and then the people they're leading are essentially ethnocentric, and then you get essentially a Muslim world. Yeah. And it just for many weird and bizarre reasons, um, one of the strange ones was, was probably oil, because um, with, with the glut of oil, that most Islamic countries had, it, they sort of bought their way around interior development. Yeah, it just wasn't necessary for them. Well, yeah, to, it, it's interesting. You know, the the Arab Emirates and uh, Saudi Arabia, they were better. They were nomads. What, a hundred years ago? Not even. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, they were in a in a between magic and mythic stage of development, and all of a yeah. sudden they're brought into modernity, and they fly around in their jets. I know. Uh, with their women shrouded in burkas. I know. I know. It's that strange artifact uh, separation again, and and they have you know some of the world's finest architects building yeah. these extraordinarily modern and postmodern buildings, and their whole infrastructure, their country is built by people at very high cognitive, usually second-tier cognitive development and technological capacities at second-tier, and their interiors are just dragging right across the ground. (laughs) And this emergence amazing? I mean, here we are at 2014, and we're spanning everything from almost magenta. I mean, you know, we could argue about that. But up to, you know, in terms of cultures, you know, certainly green, and yep. and and you know, a lot of if we if let me just ask you this, Ken. So let's say that we have five percent of the world population at integral. Right. Uh, where do you, where do you see it? Do you see it in any public figures? Do you see it in any art forms? Do you see it culturally? What yep. what's the what's sparking to you? Well, what's interesting is. Um, because I know a fair number of well-known people that have read my stuff and either hear about it or they actually contact me. Yeah. And and so so I know directly that they're that they're interested in this. And and yeah. these are these are people that are, are you know are well known. It's like the Wachowski brothers or Michael Crichton or George Lucas or even. In Hollywood, I mean, even Sharon Stone and uh, yeah. Julia Ormond, Alanis Morissette, uh, Minnie right. Driver, Brad well, Pitt, of course, Angelina Bill and Hillary Jolie, Clinton, Al Gore, Hillary Clinton, uh, absolutely, and Brad 
Brad Pitt and, and Angelina Jolie used to read my stuff to, to each yeah. other. Well, she um, wanted to do your um, Grace and Grit as a movie for years. Indeed. Working and, on that. Yeah. yeah, and she she I, I agreed to that. So so I I happen to know them. If 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 I didn't know them, I wouldn't know that they're interested <laughs> in that. And yeah. that's because we don't integral hasn't yet self-identified. In really? other words, yeah, there's cause still at around five percent. Most people that are integral don't know they're integral. And all I know is that they sort of see things, they try to explain it to their friends, their friends don't quite get it, um, so they start to get a kind of, you know, blank deer and headlight look and that kind of thing. <laughs> um, and then if they, they'll often, sometimes they'll read one of my books and, and, and lights will go off. They'll just go, this is it, I could have written this book. And they they recognize it, they're not getting new ideas they're saying i knew this i knew this i knew this i could have done this i feel okay he did it first but i could have done this um and it's just everything lights go off and you know it said and then they start bugging their friends with the books and then their friends start avoiding them because oh here he comes with you know 12 more of that word guys <laughs> books um and so so we don't have if people that are at traditional values and you, you sort of say traditional values and they'll go yeah i'm, I, I'm family values yeah that's me traditional values and if you say somebody's modernity and modern, they know they have modern values. And somebody's postmodern generally knows that they're multicultural. They know what that means. And, uh, and and so those those are all well over 10%. And they've all self-identified. And, and, and the media knows what they are. And the media all has you know their opinions formed about all of them and, and so on. Mm-hmm. But nobody knows what integral is. You know, except it just it is showing up in an awful lot of specific thought leaders in specific areas. Um, mm-hmm. When when this Ukraine project came up, um, we really saw people come out of the woodwork. That, yeah, tell, I mean, us, are, tell us, Ken, a little yeah. bit about what I, I know. You're really involved in the Ukrainian situation, and tell us a little bit about what's actually going on there. Yeah, well, it started uh, with one uh, particular person and then kind of spread. And um, there was, starting as recent as, it's like in January, there was a group of integral um, theorists in Ukraine, and they started a project called The New Country. And it started with about 16 people in it. And today there's over 2,000 people in it. Wow. And they have written aqua integral uh, positions on 15 or 16 uh, different topics or areas, everything from you know business to education to religion, uh, family, government, etc. And so, so that's uh, obviously something that I'm supporting. I think they're doing a really, really great job there. Uh, and then they've also they've actually given a two-hour presentation to Poroshenko. Ukrainian's new president. Right. So that's starting to have, you know, get get a bit of traction. And what happened when when people heard that that we were specifically asked by um, some leading Ukrainian politicians to quote help rebuild Ukraine from ground up based on integral principles. I at the end of that week, I had over 200 emails in in my email box um, from people all over the world that heard about this and wanted to participate in it somehow. 
and so we've got a, a real hint of just how many people there are out there that, you know, after, say, well, if you take, let's say, Sex, Ecology, Spirituality, 1995. Um, so that's close to 20 years yeah. that it's, it's had a chance to kind of circulate a bit. And so it's, it's certainly that's gone right. through all of Hollywood and a lot of education. Strangely, a fair number of politicians have done this. Um, Al Gore, you know, called one of, one of the books his favorite new book, and Bill Clinton quotes this stuff all the time. Um, Karl Rove got a presentation. He actually used it for his compassionate conservatism. Uh, Newt Gingrich uses one of my books, and they're Florida's values. Uh, of course, I mean, Jeb Bush does. Um, but we, we had people like, um, we were asked to write on national security from mm-hmm. an integral perspective. And one of the people that ended up uh, coming into view was the head of um, probably the world's largest security firm. They already have 600 people on the ground in Ukraine alone. And he's, he says you know, he loves Integral. And it turns out that he had gotten some coaching from a consulting firm that uses the Aqua frame for their consulting framework. And so he had learned the framework a long time ago and was still using it. So he said he loves Integral. And so he would love to you know, give a presentation on, on, on security from, a, from an integral perspective. And so we've got, um, in terms of people that are in comparable positions like that, I mean, head of the world's largest um, clothing firm on, on the net, uh, the world's, uh, in all of Britain, uh, banking system, uh, you know, on and on and on. Um, we've got some 20 of them that are doing presentations on on integral, integral approaches to, to, to these specific areas. Um, and so that was a real um, indication of how many people are really out there uh, using this in, in you know, their own sort of quiet way. Yeah, and absolutely. so as the, pop, and the population continues to grow, you know, 5%, 6%, 7%, it's going to hit that 10%, right about that tipping point, then the integral culture worldwide will self-identify. And, and that's, that's really, where, you're, you're saying that's the factor that will really sort of presage the tipping point. It'll change. I think that's a real game changer. Because, again, the problem is if you've got, at, at the minimum, these four quadrants of reality, I mean, not to mention levels and lines and all that, but just taking the four quadrants. And we have the two exterior quadrants that everybody believes in and the two interior quadrants that nobody knows anything about. (laughs) And so so our approaches to pretty much any problem in the world are guaranteed to be half-assed, more or less literally. (laughs) <laughs> and and so, I mean, it's we we are a history of a broken humanity. We we've never yeah. included just all four quadrants, let alone all yeah. levels and all lines, states. So so part of our our the wickedness of the world's wicked problems, and the reason they stay wicked is that everybody does everything they can in the right hand quadrants 
they bring in all the technological solutions and they think of all the systems theory stuff they can do and they work on all of that and they work on all of that and then they sit back and they take their hands off and it falls apart. And it falls apart because they're pushing a world-centric notion which 70% of the population doesn't understand world-centric. They're ethnocentric. World-centric is literally over their heads. So the people at ethnos, they don't believe in global warming. They don't even believe it exists because they can't see it. And so who who are the climate deniers, the far right-wing ultra-conservatives, any fundamentalist religious believer, in other words, any ethnocentric amber mythic believer, can't see world-centric systems. It's literally over their head, so it doesn't exist. So we have all of these interior factors going on and responsible for everything like why the you know um there are people beheading people and doing tweets about it um and why something like um Israel and Palestine has virtually every conceivable dimension possible in conflict i mean there there are clashes at different civilization blocks horizontally they're clashed at different levels they're uh cla- i mean they're different lines generally involved uh different states involved it's made to order for a conflict generating machine yeah and yet half of the factors that are going into this and it's actually more in terms of the weight that they get but half the factors going into this aren't known acknowledged understood or talked about yeah and we can't and, figure out why we don't get anywhere yeah, but I mean, but yet, but, but yet we've gotten somewhere. I mean, if you look at, um, you know, human violence, and we're, I, I think, in some ways, the the headline is is that we have ninety five percent of the people living in peace, maybe ninety nine percent of the people living in peace on the planet. Well, it, it, well it's it's. It's definitely true. I mean, Pinker wrote his book on on aggression as, as continually declining, and all yeah. of that's true. I mean, if you take a really long view of human history, things continually get better. They get more true and more good and more beautiful, and yeah. more complex and more conscious, and and on and on. And that's an inherent tendency of the cosmos. It, it, it's one of the fundamental, that eros is one of the fundamental forces that's an intrinsic part of the actual existing yeah. universe. And, w- and we want to notice that as we, as we integralists sort of, you know, interpret the world. Well, exactly. And what we really would like is, is the world to also understand this a little bit more. <laughs> and, and so that's what we're looking for. And that's why I think that the tipping point when 10% hits integral is going to really be a, a big game changer. Because again, I, it's like the stock market. On the long haul, it, it always goes up. Right. But that doesn't stop there being you know great depressions yeah. and really nasty turn of events. We just got you know another Gaza Strip, 2,000 people dead, uh, mm-hmm. in, in the last few months. I mean, they're still at each other's throats and have been ever since Israel was uh, instituted. Um, yeah. There are always those kinds of places. And um, Islamic fundamentalism is just really dug in. You know, it, there's that kind of problem. And it's still yeah. true that unbalanced aggression is going down and things, you know, uh, are... Um, 
and there's certain ways that things are getting better and better, but it's going to get better, better when we really do have this tipping point where all of the dimensions of a human being start to be put on the table. Yeah, we could say that arguably, because you know the U.S. maybe Western Europe's so half a stage beyond us or whatever, but let's yeah. just look at the U.S. So we have this great polarization now, where we have you know basically two thirds of Republicans think that Democrats are dangerous to the union, and right. and and vice versa. You know, so yep. we have this you know sort of paralysis in Congress. And, you know, is there something that's fruitful about this? Is there something that pops us into a new stage? Is this sort of the nature of emergence itself? Or, or are we just, like, fucking up? Well, here's a really far out way that um, you could start to think about what future democracy might look like. Because right now, the the way it is, is it's based on essentially a a pure egalitarianism. One person, one vote. Now, um, that has to be handled very carefully because if you're ever going to try to change something like that, then you have to have, I mean, rules for evidence and truthfulness are going to have to be extremely high if you're going to to replace that with some alternative kind of system. But let's say that we had, for a century or so, had educational systems that recognized that their job was to raise people up in their levels of development, in addition to teaching them skills. So it was understood that at, at this particular grade, you had mastered infrared, and it this particular stage you'd mastered magenta, and this particular stage you'd mastered red, and this particular um, grade you mastered at amber, and then at graduation you were orange or possibly higher. Mm-hmm. And we had been thinking like that for some time. We'd started to sort of look at other cultures through those lens. We started to look at our own citizens through those lens, and so on. Then in in at least some sort of testing areas, we might do something like give somebody at red one vote, somebody at amber two votes, somebody at orange. <laughs> you get, a, you get a vote for every perspective you can take. Yeah. Oh, so my goodness. Red, wow. Red, ha- red has good. one perspective, it gets one vote. Amber has second <laughs> perspective, it gets two. Orange has third person, it gets three. Green has four, it gets four votes. Teal gets five votes. Turquoise gets six votes, and third tier gets seven votes. And so let let us use those in cert, just certain circumstances and try it out and see what kind of results start happening yeah. when we actually give not a physical body a vote, but a consciousness perspective a yeah. vote. That's what should all. That's what should be important. Yeah, and otherwise, I mean, you're, you know, your Mother Teresa and Jack the Ripper are essentially getting treated the same, and there's, there's right. something that's just a little bit off about that. Yeah, um, no, it's true. 
But you can see, of course, <laughs> see the you know, problems of implementing something like that. But oh yeah, but, yeah, totally. absolutely. And that's where maybe we. I see we're getting on the end of our time here. But if we think about, you know, just even wild ass guesses about the future. Yeah. And you know, some of what might arise here and what's next. Um, where do you see? I mean, so here we. I, I, I sort of said it kind of glibly at the beginning. We're 13.8 billion years into this adventure. Yeah. You know, where are we at at 13.80001? I mean, what, what's I next? It's happening pretty fast. It is. What do you see, where do you see humanity in maybe 20 years, 50 years, I don't know, 100 years? Sure. What do you, how do we think well, about that? Well, yeah, my sense is that um, in, in 20 years, we're going we're gonna to have hit that second tier tipping point. And so people are going to start, and it'll be slow, but they're going to start paying attention to interior degrees of development. Yeah. And as as people continue to think that way and see that it just fits a whole lot of world circumstances that didn't make sense before and that it just starts to make sense in a lot of ways. And when they see the actual evidence, I mean, most of these most of the dimensions in the aqual framework aren't well known. And that's why it's so useful, because it, it, most of them have been um, discovered and developed and understood by small knowledge communities. But in those knowledge communities, there's an enormous amount of evidence, and nobody doubts the reality of these things. And there's, there's a very broad sort of consensus in these, in these knowledge communities about what these what these uh, dimensions are and, and what they mean, what they're doing, and, and how they grow and develop and so on. And so as, as that sort of continues to become known and people can sort of start to trust that kind of knowledge, I think we're also going to see a corresponding growth in an understanding of brain structure. And I think one of the things that's going to start to happen, certainly about 50 years from now, is that we're going to start having brain-computer links. So we're, we're going to Brain, start... Brain, computer, what? what were you saying? Link, link, linkages. Okay, links, links yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Interesting. And so, I mean, Kurzweil even counts, it counts that as part of the singularity that the next generation of kids will have implants in their brain where they can download anything from the web. So, in oh, a okay. sense, the world's entire knowledge base would be available to every human being. Yeah. And now, what is going to have to come with that is a way to arrange that knowledge and that means we're going to have to have levels of development because different levels see different things. And so just the fact that somebody has all that information dumped in them doesn't mean they're going to be able to cognize it or understand it. So somebody at RAD would be able to understand just really first-person egocentric things, and somebody at AMBER would be second-person and so on. But I think we're going to start to have these brain-mind, brain-computer linkages and at some point, we might even get to the point where, where we can tell from brain scanning what a person's mind space is. So we could start mm -hmm. to see certain structures in their mind. So by taking brain scans, we would be able to certifiably say, yes, this person is orange, or this person is green, or this person is turquoise, or this person is yeah. indigo. 
and it would come with a certain amount of authority and people would tend to trust it. And I keep saying we would have had a century of looking at our educational system as producing higher levels of consciousness because I think it's going to take a century to get used to that. But once that happens, it's just second nature that people will say, well, so-and-so is that rad and so, you know, watch out for this or, oh, you want to set somebody up with my daughter? Well, she's a turquoise, so you should, you know, think about that. Or I mean, it'll just become part of what we take into account about another human being. You know, they're this tall, they weigh this much, they work at this job, they're at this level of consciousness and so on. Um, but but once once that starts happening, then we would start um, experimenting with, with different governance systems. Right mm-hmm. now, what's on the leading edge is simply a world federation of everybody, one person, one vote. And so we have to be very, very careful about that. Because, again, even if we had one person, one vote in this country, because, you know, less, according to Keegan, less than 30% are at world centric, we are going to get things like, you know, the South would reintroduce segregated restaurants and segregated restrooms. And, I mean, they think that way now. Uh, if, if it was a one person, one vote, they would do it. Kansas would outlaw the teaching of evolution, and I mean, on and on and on. Um, so, so we, the reason we have representative democracy and things like Supreme Courts is that we intuitively understand that some people are better at these things, they're higher developed at these things, and, and can make mm-hmm. better decisions than other people. Except if you get a really idiotic ethnocentric senator, like Nebraska's great senator, Roman Ruska, when they were trying to choose uh, Supreme Court justice. And the most common complaint about this one justice is that he was mediocre. And Ruska got up on the Senate floor and defended him by actually saying, don't mediocre people deserve representing? (laughs) Well, that's very democratic. (laughs) Exactly. That's the problem. I mean, Plato wrote the first critique of democracy. He put it at one of the lowest levels of democracy we have. And his critique is still valid. It's the lowest common denominator, and it produces nothing but demagogues. It's right. It it, it gives everybody a vote. It doesn't take into account differences in minds at all. We can't think of ways to do that differently now. I can't think of ways to do that differently now. But I can at least think of ways that it could be done differently if certain other things were kind of in place, and yeah. and we had a had a chance to get that up and up and going, so that's what I tend to see in 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 terms of of the far future, is that when you have these dimensions of reality that are very real, and they are impacting us all the time, and we don't know it. As soon as humanity learns about it, they tend to believe it, they take it seriously, and they start changing their behavior. So every time, I mean, this, you know, it's something that could go on, you know, the Cosmos series or something. But yeah. every time some, you know, new piece of information that really has evidence and, and is believed is introduced into a culture, it takes it seriously and it starts using it and, and, yeah. and it starts acting as if that's true. These yeah. dimensions are so significant and so important and they're governing so much of our lives. It just can't keep going that we don't take that into account. 
Humans can't keep overlooking the major force of their own motivations, the major force of their own drives and desires and needs. They just can't keep overlooking that. And so when I think down the future, I think that kind of stuff is going to come online. And then, wow, that's going to change stuff. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And and I have to say, and this is maybe overexpanding our conversation here a little bit, but good Lord, Ken, would we look at the nature of emergence since the Big Bang and certainly in the last, you know, uh, half a million years and uh, yeah. and all of humanity, yeah. God, there's so much suffering and, yeah. know. you know, dog eat dog and... And you realize, I mean, even using developmental theory, uh, putting heads on spikes is actually progress over people who didn't know how to put heads on spikes. But I know. Still, you know <laughs> caught I off. Know. You know, I mean, what's the nature of God, if you will? Or what's the nature of the intelligence? Or how does – I'm trying to figure out how to relate to the intelligence behind evolution and emergence looking at the biggest picture that includes so much pain and you know i know this has been you know be flummoxing philosophers for centuries but what do you have to say about it well it, one of the simplest ways to go at something like this is to simply look at what's the actual nature of moment to moment experience okay. such that the world can actually manifest and exist. I mean, what has to actually happen from moment to moment in, in order for existence to occur at all? That's a classic philosophical kind of thing to ask. But we can look at what, like, one of my favorite, and, and I, I incorporate this as part of my own response, is, is Whitehead's view about this. Mm-hmm. And for Whitehead, each moment came to be, each drop of experience, each moment, came to be and was a subject of experience. Mm-hmm. And that subject felt the previous moment, or what he called mm-hmm. prehended. Mm-hmm. So this subject comes into being, it prehends the previous subject, now that makes that an object. Mm-hmm. So the previous subject prehends, the, the present subject prehends the previous subject, which now becomes an object, but of course it, it's included. And as, as part of the present subject as well, because if, if you, you know, embrace something, feel something, put your arms around it, so then it, it, it that that's affecting you, that, that's having impact on you. So that was the causal part of the past. That's how the past had some impact on the present. How the past, to mm-hmm. some extent, determines the present, because each present is prehending or feeling or incorporating or including the previous moment. And so, of course, it's going to impact it or make some sort of uh, uh, influence on it. But then each present moment, after prehending the previous moment, it then adds its own bit of novelty, its own creativity. And novelty means that, fresh, new, something that never existed before. So that just means out of this creative well, out of this vast eros, a little bit of newness comes into being and is part of that present moment. Now, why I said it that if, if the novelty part is really, really, really low, then it'll look like strict causality. 
because very little new gets gets added moment to moment. So if you watch atoms interacting with each other and they're banging into each other, it looks pretty strict causality. Mm-hmm. But the universe went from a point where there was just nothing but atoms banging into each other until at one point those atoms grew together and jumped into becoming molecules. Something very new. So there was some novelty that was accumulating at that atomic level or it'd never be able to jump into molecules. So now we've got molecules. They're all kind of banging into each other and not adding a great deal of novelty. So it sort of still looks a little bit deterministic until at one point, millions of years later, a whole group of very complex molecules were in the same vicinity and a cell wall dropped around them and you get a living cell, which is staggering. Oh, creative my God. Leap. Unbelievable. So now, cells, they don't look so deterministic because they're starting to show their own reactions. And so any physicist can, can tell you where Jupiter will be 500 years from now, but no biologist will tell you where a yeast cell will be two minutes from now. <laughs> it's just it, 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 little degrees of freedom are getting yeah. added as this thing goes up. But each of these is transcending and including its predecessor. And so that's what has to happen, is that in order for this moment to come into being, it has to feel the previous moment. But then in in order for, for any creativity to happen at all, then it has to add a little bit of novelty. Now, I think that happens in all four quadrants. But what that does mean, and we say, Therefore, each moment is transcend and include, transcends and includes. And that means the subject of each moment becomes the object of the subject of the next moment. We hear Keegan say in human development that the best way to summarize human development that I know is that the subject of one stage becomes the object of the subject of the next stage. It's still going on. They're still transcending and including. And and there's not a single hole on that's been produced going all the way back to the Big Bang that isn't still in existence today because wow. it's still getting included. Yeah. So uh, quarks are still here. Atoms are still here. Molecules are still here. Cells are still here. Human beings have every one of those in them. We transcend and include. We have atoms in us. We have quarks in us. We have cells in us. All of that. We transcend and include every single stage of evolution that has ever come into existence in 14 billion years. And that's why we come and you watch the, you look at the whole 14 billion years as a one-year calendar, then human beings are like in, in the last day, in the, in the last hour, in the last few minutes. Yeah. Be- because we had to transcend and include everything that came before. Yeah. The problem part is that then we get into humans and they're transcending and including, transcending and including. It means that as our own history gets thicker and thicker and thicker, there are more and more levels to us. There are also, therefore, more and more things that can break down, more and more things that can go wrong. Right now, for a human being to get to a green level of development, there are at least six or seven major levels stages that they have to go through to get there. And something can go pathological at every one of those stages. Mm -hmm. That means human beings have at least six or seven ways to get really 
psychologically fucked up. Yeah. You go back to tribes. The person was born infrared, and to become an adult, they just had to make it to magic. There was only one way you could get screwed up in tribal times. <laughs> we can get sick in ways that tribes couldn't even imagine, yeah. and we do. Yeah. And so it's it's it, what happens with this whole complexity is this extraordinary mixture of high and low that gets thrown together, and that's what makes existence so absolutely weird for us. It's what we were saying earlier about Auschwitz, about tribal mentality with modern artifacts. Yeah. What is that but a, a, an indication of that extraordinary mixture of high and low? And everybody is still born at square one, which means that even if we get to supermind in the future, all that really means there'll be 12 ways to get totally fucked. <laughs> Does the suffering <laughs> never end, Ken? I mean, not can, like that. Not, all, not all, with, of those, all of those things that can go wrong in, involve, you know, exquisite suffering. It certainly does. And it certainly is, I mean, it, 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 you know, the Buddhist three noble truths, I mean, the mark of existence is dukkha. And what yeah. that really means is separate yeah. self existence. So if you can get into a state where you're no longer a separate subject confronting a world of other or object, mm -hmm. then you are transcending the suffering, not, not necessarily pain. Pain can still arise, right. but you're no longer identified with it, so it doesn't turn into suffering. So there, there are ways out of suffering, and they involve these transformations of consciousness into broader and deeper and higher and wider states of consciousness that eventually... Uh, transcend and include the entire universe, a supreme identity with everything that's arising moment to moment. And wow. in that state, there's no suffering. But there's plenty of pain, and there's yeah. plenty of, of things that are generating suffering in masses of human beings that aren't awakened to their supreme identity. And right. that's uh, uh, almost always, apparently, going to be the case, because we're always born at square one, the Upanishads say wherever there is other, there is fear. And it's one of the first things humans learn to do is differentiate self and other. And as soon as they do that, welcome to fear. And and yeah. they're stuck with it as long as self versus other is real. So one can meet one's demise like Joan of Arc or a gazelle in the jaws of a lion where yeah. it's actually an ecstatic experience. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we saw we saw monks in Vietnam setting themselves on fire and not flinching. Isn't that something? No. Yeah. No. So, those are possible, and that that's that is worth remembering. Well, I think we need to rethink suffering because it, it, it <laughs> um, and death because it's so it's so sticky and so the. This ought not be, and it clearly yeah, is, and it's clearly okay with God. So you know, it has uh, to be okay with that. us. Yeah, I know. I, that, that's why there's a a, um, a book that is in um, um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and well, actually, there are two books by this one writer. One was called "Who Is This God Person Anyway." <laughs> and the other was 53 more of God's biggest mistakes. 
And <laughs> I always love that title because I can think of 53 right now. Me too. Um, you know, it's just, <laughs> it's just, I mean, if this, oh, if, if this is God, I mean, I'm not sure I want to, you know, uh, yeah, be part I know. of this. <laughs> I know. Well, that's what all these theodicies, there was a whole, you know, um, philosophical fashion of coming up with a theodicy, which was trying to show how, why, that this was not the best of all worlds, but the best of all possible worlds. <laughs> <laughs> so that if, if you want to have you know sensitivity to stuff and be sensitive to pleasure, then you're going to also have to be sensitive to pain. Uh, it really doesn't make any sense to be, have one of those without the other. Mm-hmm. So you know all of these opposites come into being, and and we we try to gather all the positive opposites, you know, all the pleasure and all the good and all the joy and, and all the love, and none of the fear, none of the hate, none of the pain, or that. But that's like wanting a world with all ups and no downs, and all lefts and no rights, and all all ins and no outs. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it just it, it doesn't work like that. If you want any yeah. of those positives, you got to take those negatives uh, with them. Or you just you're not going to get a manifestation. You're not going to get a a yin and a yang up and running. So yeah. you you can't really get anything manifest. And well, just, I just want to say that I wish that it could. Yeah. <laughs> right, well, that's I know I know. It's, it's sort of, <laughs> I wish we uh, could have the ups and not the downs. And uh, exactly, and uh, it's exactly people wanting that that you know makes them continue to invent things that make things a little bit better. So that's yeah. that's all good. Yeah, but also to just embrace the negative, embrace death, I mean, embrace the sort of uh, transitory nature of this existence, and even to see the ecstasy and suffering, I think is a challenge. It's a challenge for me. It's what I'm, one of the things I'm working on. And, right. um, you know, God bless us all. In, indeed, indeed. It it, it yeah. is um, it it's a, a strange and wonderful world. <laughs> oh, Ken! <laughs> well, you have illuminated so much of this strange and wonderful world to so many of us, uh, bless and you, um, I am so grateful and so happy to have talked to you for this last ninety minutes. For goodness' sakes, uh, of so, course. Yeah. Anything so thank for you, you so much for being. Oh, okay, thank you, Ken. And you, it's so much. Thank you so much for being part of my hundredth episode. And um, more an honor. Yeah, an honor, indeed. Thank you, Betty. All right. Thanks, Ken. Bye bye.